This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. In the 1980s, a dragon appeared on a Milwaukee landmark. We'll explore the story behind it later in the show. But first, in 2019, 8-year-old Jefferson Rodriguez was fatally injured on a dairy farm in Dane County. Panicked farm workers, including the child's father, tried to communicate what had happened to authorities, despite a significant language barrier. The migrant farm workers spoke Spanish, and despite police attempts to translate, the story that emerged did not match the reality of what had happened. This story is at the heart of a recent investigation by ProPublica that looks into what really happened to Jefferson Rodriguez, the conditions on the farm that allowed for this accident, and how officials tasked with protecting the community responded. The piece was co-authored by Melissa Sanchez and Miriam Jamil. Sanchez joins Like Effect's Joy Powers to share more. In a warning to our listeners, this conversation includes descriptions of fatal injuries to a young child. This is a, a very difficult story to unravel, in, in part because of this misunderstanding, misunderstandings that happened at the very beginning. I'd like to start with the reality of what happened that evening at DNK Dairy. A new employee had just started working at the farm earlier that day and, and was put to work on some very dangerous equipment that evening. That's right. So there was a there were three workers at this farm in Dane County, and one had just started earlier that day on a twelve to six shift, and his job was to corral cows into and out of the milking parlor and clean up after them. Um, and that involved driving a skid steer. And I did not know what a skid steer was until I started reporting on this. But it's like a very small tractor. It's kind of like a high-low, but it's got this like bucket in front and they can kind of replace that attachment. But they kind of use it to scrape manure out of barns and corrals. He, he learned how to use a machine that very day. And he had, had to return after the 12 to 6 shift for a night shift that started at 8 o'clock. And there were two workers in the milking parlor. A couple of hours after that second shift started, you know, according to our interview with him and to other people who, who were there that night, he was backing the machine up in this dark area. It's unclear whether the lights on the machine worked. He had to use a flashlight at different points um, in the night to see what was happening. But he was backing up the machine to turn it toward one of the corrals to, to clean it in time, to move the cows in time, to get them into the milking parlor in time to be milked. And suddenly he hit something. And when he looked in front of him, he could see the body of, of a boy, the son of one of his coworkers. As one might imagine, a lot of things happened in very quick succession right after that. They called the police, of course. They informed the people who owned the farm. It, it seemed like a very chaotic scene. The father, of course, was beside himself. What started to happen in the moments after this crash happens? Well, I don't think I said this earlier, but to be clear, the workers on that farm were immigrants. The three of them were Nicaraguan, and they did not speak English. And the owners of the farm did not speak Spanish. So from the start, when when this man, who we identify in the story as Blandon, his, his last name, after he realizes he struck this child, he runs to the milking parlor where the boy's father, Jose Rodriguez, is milking cows. And he screams and tells him that he accidentally hit his son. And so Jose runs runs out to try to, to see what happened. And meanwhile, the other worker who was inside the parlor, a woman named Sandra, 
runs to the house where the the owners of the of the farm live. If if you can imagine it, the house is you know maybe 20, 30 meters away from the milking parlor. It's all very close. The owners come out and. Sandra doesn't speak English. And so she says the only words, some of the few words that she can say in English when the when the owner, Dan Brunig, comes out, she says, Jose's baby. And when Jose looks up, he sees Jose walking back toward the parlor with his eight-year-old son, Jefferson, dead or almost dead in his arms. And when Dan Brunig calls 911, he says he doesn't know what happened, that he thinks the boy might have been trampled by a cows. And it's a very chaotic setting. There's cows everywhere. It's in the middle of a milking shift. So you have these English-speaking farm owners trying to understand what the tragedy was that just occurred. And all he can see is this, this boy whose head has been split in two in, in his worker's arms. And so as, as police, as the sheriff's office starts to arrive, at first it's in, it's in Dane County, but the first officer to arrive is from Columbia, which um, because the farm is right near the border, nearly everybody who showed up that night from the authorities didn't speak Spanish. And so there's a lot of confusion about how it was that this child wound up hurt and soon after declared dead on the scene. One of the things that I think really becomes clear, because some people might say, well, why was a child on a farm at night? But Jefferson wasn't the only child who was running around this farm or, in fact, many of Wisconsin's rural farms. What is the child care reality for people who are working in these situations? That, that's a really good question. So there, there's there's a problem with like access to affordable childcare. I think that's like across the country, urban or rural. But I, but for farms like this one, which was very normal in a lot of ways, it's exceptionally difficult both for farm you know white farm owning families and the people who work for them if they have children when they operate a farm that is a 24-hour-a-day operation. So this farm is not unusual in that it had three milking shifts, and one of them started, one of them was overnight. Whether you work on the farm or you're a farm owner who has children on the farm, if you do have kids, if you don't have access to childcare, then they might be around if they're not asleep. So in this case, the facts of what happened are contested, but according to Jose, to Blandon, the man who killed his child, other workers there, a half dozen visitors to the farm, I think altogether we have close to a dozen people who said that Jose and his son and two other workers lived in a loft apartment space above the milking parlor. And Jose and his son shared a bed in a bunk bed that they shared with another worker. This was in the middle of the summer. Um, Jose and his son had arrived from Nicaragua a few months earlier. The boy never attended school, but it, the death took place on a July night in 2019 when there was no school in session. And this boy got used to walking around at night and following these really erratic schedules of his father and the other workers. But in this case, there was a child living in the barn. And I say I said it was contested because the farm owners in a deposition said that that was not the case. They said that Jose and his son lived in a house down the road that they had for workers. But we've talked to workers who did live in the other house and the workers who did live in the barn, and they say that's not the case. But there's no data on this. We we know from anecdotal evidence from talking to dozens of, of, of dairy workers in Wisconsin that it is not uncommon for immigrant workers, particularly those who've come in recent years from Central America with children, to have kids with them and then need to work. And because employers are often providing housing on site, then you do have kids around. This is Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and I'm speaking with Melissa Sanchez, 
the co-author of a recent ProPublica investigation into the death of eight-year-old Jefferson Rodriguez. As you've mentioned, many of the people who work on these farms, not just in Dane County, but throughout the state of Wisconsin, I think throughout the United States, are immigrants. These are people who are often vulnerable as a result of their immigration status. How does that impact the power balance on these farms? That's a, that's an interesting question. Yeah, there, there's no like hard and firm data on this, but if you walk on any farm and you see who's working in the parlor, it's very often going to be um, an immigrant worker. And in Dane County, they tend to be Nicaraguan. Over the years, like the landscape has changed and it went from like Mexican undocumented immigrants and now there's more and more Central Americans. And a lot of them aren't necessarily undocumented. They're people who came in seeking asylum, which is something that they're legally entitled to, but they might not have work permits because that um, there's like a whole process that comes into play. So they might be using fake papers to get their jobs. The, the, the reason why dairy farms employ immigrant workers is because nobody else wants to do this work. It's really dangerous. It's really dirty. Like I said, the hours are, are messed up. And it's it's just hard, awful work. Jose was making, I think, nine fifty an hour at this farm. And like I said, he was working 80-hour weeks, and that was pretty standard um, across this farm and other farms. And you might think like, oh, well, with overtime, like one could make good money, except agriculture is excluded from so many of the labor protections that the rest of us are, you know, take for granted. And so there is no access to that additional time and a half pay when you work, when you work those many hours. In, in Wisconsin and in a lot of other states, like like Vermont or New York, where there's a lot of small farms, maybe five, six, seven hundred cows, not, not the big mega farms, employers typically provide housing for their workers. And they do this for a couple of reasons. Because of those, those crazy shifts that I mentioned that workers have to come in overnight, it's convenient to have workers kind of physically very close to where they need to be at work. And Wisconsin, as you may not may know, many years ago, uh, stopped allowing undocumented people to access driver's licenses. So undocumented people can't drive legally in Wisconsin. And if they do, they risk the possibility of getting ticketed. And those tickets can, can end up costing a lot. And that's an issue we hope to explore in the coming months. But because of their immigration status, and that's tied to, to pay, that ends up being tied to housing, it creates this really complicated dynamic between employer and employee. It's hard for workers to speak out about conditions that are not safe or convenient or good for them because they're undocumented. It's a really complicated dynamic. One of the things that also, it seems like as a result of how this original narrative was spun, one of the things that really wasn't explored by the police or authorities were the conditions on this farm that led to this accident. What are some of the dangers that were on the farm that, again, as we've talked about, were pretty banal, but ultimately impacted this situation? It's hard to know everything that happened because there there were no safety inspections at that farm that we that we know of ever. OSHA is a federal like agency that is responsible for ensuring that workplaces are are safe, that people don't suffer injuries or die during work. But farms are treated with like a kind of exceptionalism in our country's labor law. And small farms, small meaning farms that employ 10 or fewer people are exempt from a lot of OSHA inspection. Like OSHA isn't allowed to spend its dollars, its resources, its manpower on inspecting um, small farms, even when somebody dies or is injured. And 
as a result, like we don't, we don't, we don't actually know all the problems that were taking place there. But what we know from interviews and from uh, from from records, from some court records, the the machine that that ended up running over this child may not have had working lights, a backup alarm, or a horn. An inspector who was hired by attorneys who are now representing the the father in a wrongful death lawsuit against the farm inspected the machine two and a half months after the the boy died and said that these things weren't working. Uh, the other worker who was there recalled that the the worker, Blandon, he'd recently arrived from Nicaragua. He didn't have a phone of his own, and he asked to borrow hers to use as a flashlight because he couldn't see. It's, it was very dark. It's unclear what kind of training this guy received. He said that another worker trained him on how to use the the machine, and he he had to come back and use it on his own a few hours later after a long shift. We know that it's really common on these farms for people to work these miserable hours, like I said, and your body does not function well if, if it's working on little sleep. And that's not to, to single out this particular farm for, for this, but this is pretty common from what we understand on farms, that people work work these kinds of hours and, and it's really hard to be alert. And and then, yeah, like there, there was a child who people knew was running around at night on the work site. So there were a lot of different factors at play and nobody ever did anything about it, either before Jefferson died or after. A medical examiner who who investigated the case, she called OSHA the night that Jefferson died to let them know that this child who was at work with his father was dead. But OSHA said that they, because he wasn't a worker, they wouldn't inspect and they, they didn't inspect. Child welfare services were called the night of Jefferson's death. And, you know, this county agency that's overseen by the state is supposed to investigate any time there's a there's the, the possibility or suspicion of abuse or neglect of a child. And, and they from what we can tell, they didn't do anything. And I, I don't want to suggest that the child was abused or neglected, but there was a child who was running around on a farm late at night unsupervised. And then the police too, the, the sheriff's department, um, they investigated the death. And they had made some pretty catastrophic mistakes in their investigation, but they um, ultimately focused the investigation on was his death an accident or not? And it was. So they ruled it an accident, case closed, and they did nothing to step back and, and understand what the conditions were on the farm, like whether it was the housing above the barn, whether whether the, the machine was was working properly, whether the worker was properly trained, whether the there was proper supervision for the child. None of these things were looked at by anybody. It sounds like just a lot of systems that ended up failing here. As you look at this story, as you look at the death of Jefferson Rodriguez, what do you think we should learn from this? What do you hope readers take away when they read your piece? And what do you hope, you know, this community hears in this story? I mean, there's a lot. I think, I mean, I don't live in in Wisconsin. I live in Chicago. So I kind of come into it from an outsider's perspective. But there are a lot of immigrant workers in really miserable, inhumane conditions whose labor is helping us access milk at decent prices in the grocery store. And and there has been this narrative that I've I've kind of heard over over the past several months of reporting. There's like benevolent farm owners and like immigrants are happy to do the work and the O farms are happy to have the immigrants and all is good, like nothing to see here. And it's sort of this wink wink, nod, nod. Everybody is aware that the folks doing the work are undocumented, but nobody says anything. And what the death of this boy shows is that that it's 
the conditions are not what most of us would want for our own children or for ourselves. And, you know, and I, I didn't even get to the, the police failure here when the one deputy on the scene who spoke any Spanish interviewed the father. There was a significant language failure. And she understood from his grieving, hysterical father that he had killed his child. And he didn't. And he didn't go to jail. There weren't criminal charges. But the but the public narrative about what happened, the official account was that this immigrant dad killed his kid and everybody was so sad about it. And it was such an awful tragedy. But that was the end of the story. And that's not actually what happened. And, and so I, I do think folks, I really hope can take from this that language is really important. And there's very there's we, we, we have filed records requests and police responses at dozens and dozens of farms across the state. And it's really common for deputies to show up and not be able to communicate with workers. So they rely on the boss to interpret. They rely on children to interpret. They rely on Google Translate for, for translations. We found a case of a guy who got shot in the eye at a, at a farm and nobody ever interviewed the victim. They're like, oh, it was an accident, like end of story. And so there's serious problems here with law enforcement's ability to communicate with folks who then become even more isolated, like their their, their voices just aren't even counted often when when serious situations take place. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you for having me. Melissa Sanchez is the co-author of the ProPublica investigation on the death of eight-year-old Jefferson Rodriguez. Sanchez spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. Gargoyles and grotesques can be found on architecture throughout Milwaukee. But for a few days in the 1980s, a big green dragon became part of one of the city's landmarks. We'll bring you that story in about 15 minutes. But first, we'll speak with Milwaukee's new port director, the first person of color and the first woman to hold the position. That's coming up on Lake Effect after the break on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you're in Milwaukee, perhaps the few times you think about the port is when you drive over the Hone Bridge and look at the cargo ships docked, or perhaps you've even seen the passenger cruise ships arrive. The Port of Milwaukee has a whole ecosystem within the 467 acres that make up the port. It promotes shipping and commerce through the region and deals with domestic and international ships, plus rail and over-the-road transportation. Jackie Q. Carter was recently named Municipal Port Director. A Milwaukee native, she's the first woman and the first person of color to serve in this position. To learn more about what it means to be the director of Port Milwaukee, she joins me now. Jackie, welcome to Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So you're the new director of Milwaukee's Port, but before we get into this, I'd like to know more about your background. You're a lifelong Milwaukeean, right? I am. I am. I was uh, born and raised in Milwaukee, raised by my grandmother, grew up in 33rd and Walnut, so um and her house is still there, so we're we're still part of that neighborhood. Went to Milwaukee Public Schools, graduate of Marshall High School, and then went on to uh, MATC, got an accounting degree there. Went from there to Alberno, uh, pursued business and uh, professional communication, and then a uh, my MBA is uh, from Concordia College with an emphasis in public administration. And I kind of worked through school, so I was working for the city. Um, during the time that I was in school, and that's kind of how it happened. I, my original start in uh, my career is in the nonprofit sector, 
And that had a lot to do with the programs that served me as a young person. So giving back to those programs and then eventually moving over into the public sector. So that's kind of how we got into the city. So, With your background throughout nonprofits and the city, someone on the outside who doesn't understand quite how the infrastructure of both the city and the port works might think that it's kind of a, a career out of left field for you to transition over to the port. Were you kind of surprised once you realized like, oh, the port is an option and there's this whole other part of the city that not many people know about, but that's central to what we do? Absolutely. You are you are spot on with that. And I, I was actually a little surprised. I never imagined that this would be where I would I would land. But um, I think it's important for people to understand that the port is really um, plays a, a real b- business liaison role for the city and for the region. So we help businesses to uh, get their products to international markets. And then we also help to bring international products into this region. And so the port is kind of the facilitator of that through our tenants and our customers, uh, making sure that they're, you know, they have what they need to be able to operate. So that means taking care of the infrastructure. That means, you know, making sure that the uh, rail track that they need to move some of those commodities around is functional and up to date and can handle the cargoes that uh, we're putting on them. That means the the dock walls and uh, the terminal buildings and different things that we own, making sure that stuff is up to par, but also working with the right folks. So bringing um, new business to the port where we can. We have a, a market development manager who's always out looking for new opportunities to connect with businesses and to help them understand what we offer. And so I think it is interesting that People don't necessarily always consider the port as part of the city, but the city, you know, being a a steward of the residents and their tax dollars, the port is really an extension of that. And though we we raise revenue and we're able to support a lot of the function that we do, we also contribute to the tax base by increasing or raising enough revenue where not only do we cover our expenses, But there's money left over at the end of every year that we can then contribute back to the tax base, which helps to lower those those rates and those bills that we receive. So for people out there who are just learning about the role the port plays besides what we see going over the home, right, or on the edge of the cityscape, what does a port director do? What's your job? So a port director makes sure that all the pieces are in place, basically. I mean, that's a really high level of it. But we are um, interacting not only with customers and tenants who are right here at the port, but also with our uh, elected officials, the local elected officials, regional and national. So there's an advocacy piece. So we work with the American Great Lakes Ports Association and also the American Association of Ports Authorities. They, they both have an advocacy arm. And so we work with those groups to make sure that the needs of the region are understood by the people that represent us. So that's one part of it. The other part is making sure that the staff have what they need to be able to support all the things that go on at the port. So Port Milwaukee has uh, four divisions. There's the marketing folks who go out and are working with the customers and the tenants to make sure that they have what they need and and also making those connections. There's also the engineering folks who are um, making sure that that infrastructure is in place. So when those ships arrive, they can safely dock, that those commodities can be offloaded and all of the uh, structures are in place, that the rail is working, that um, you know the, uh, the terminal buildings are safe and function in the way that our tenants you know, need them to. Then we have operations, which really are kind of the boots on the ground 
brown folks who um, support the work. So those are crane operators. They, those are operations technicians. They're making sure that the roadways are clear. If there's debris out in the harbor, they're getting out on, on the port's work boats to, to clear some of that stuff up. Um, you know, just supporting the needs of our tenants. And then we have finance, which is the part of the port that I originally came to. And that's making sure that the uh, monetary resources are in place. We also are making sure the bills are paid and uh, the people are paid because the HR function also rests in finance. So those are those are like the four functional areas of the port and what we do. Um, I don't know if that does that answer your question. Well, it just sounds like you got a lot to take care of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. And as someone who's also grown up in Milwaukee, I think the most significant difference I've seen in the port in the past few years is uh, cruise ships, commercial. It's no longer just barges that we grew up with. So that's one area of growth. What do you see as the most significant area of growth that the port has accomplished? Yeah, I think you're right. Cruise ships is is an area of growth. And I think that's one that uh, really helps us to elevate our profile in the community, but also in the region, nationally. I mean, we've had some international coverage about cruise ships. So that's a really good one. And I think that's that's an area w- that I know we'll focus on, you know, continue to, to support what we've been able to build, but also building on it. So with the, we have a uh, cruise dock that we are gonna be building because as you know, Viking, which is one of the larger ships that visits the Great Lakes, they're a lot bigger than the, the cruise ships we've seen in, in previous years. So we have the, the cruise dock that's, right downtown adjacent to Discovery World, where they can ha- they can house some of those smaller cruise ships. But with the, the ships that they're building now, they're a lot larger. And so that South Shore Cruise Dock is going to be a space where we're able to take some of those uh, cruise ships and get them out of the commercial side of the port. Because right now they're docking at our um, heavy lift dock, which is right in the middle of all the salt piles and different things like that. And so we want to get them out of there and put them over across right behind the Lake Express Ferry. So that's one big thing. But I think also, I guess, elevating our profile so that businesses understand that's really where where a lot of my work, I believe, is going to happen is getting out into the the business community, making sure they understand the services that we're we're offering, making sure they understand the tenant partners that are down here and, you know, what they're able to offer and making those connections. So that's really where a lot of the work is going to come from, you know, in the future. You're also the first person of color and the first woman in this role. What does it mean to you to make local history? And if this is the case for Milwaukee, I imagine the overall landscape of the port workforce in the U.S. and Midwest doesn't differ too much. That is absolutely true. Um, it's there, there are not a lot of people in this industry that look like me. Um, but I do believe that we all end up where we're supposed to be, right? And I think the significance of that, especially with my my background and life skills, you know, we spent a lot of time giving young people the message that they could be whatever they wanted to be. And so if someone who looks like me can walk into an industry that traditionally people like me don't work in, that's a that's a story of hope, right? That's a story of being able to overcome. So being that example to young people in our community, you know, that anything really is possible because if you'd asked me 20 years ago, would I even work at the port? I would have probably, I, I would have had no idea. But I think you you kind of go as the path leads you, right? And so the fact that I've been able to to end up here, you know, as the port director, as the first woman, as the first person of color, I think my responsibility is making sure that I'm not the last, right? 
So connecting with uh, young people in the community, making sure they know the things that we offer and what's possible for, as far as a career. Uh, there's a lot of different professions that operate in the port. And so making sure that, you know, there's community engagement where we're able to expose young people to all of those different options that exist right here in the community, that's really important. Well, Jackie, congratulations on your latest appointment. I wish you the best of luck and I look forward to all the changes to come. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jackie Q. Carter is the director of Port Milwaukee. She was appointed on February 23rd. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. One fall day in 1985, a green and gold dragon appeared on Milwaukee's east side. Now, this isn't the start of a children's book. It did actually happen. We'll have that story next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Many Milwaukeeans might be able to picture the North Point water tower on the east side. It's a distinct landmark along the lakefront. Now, picture it with a fire-breathing dragon hanging off of its side. It's not fantasy. It really happened in the 1980s. This Bubbler Talk from 2019 explains more. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. It was like something out of a fairy tale. One day in the fall of 1985, a 30-foot-long green dragon appeared on Milwaukee's east side. My eyes, even now, get wider just thinking about it. It was a 350-pound sculpture perched on the gothic-looking North Point water tower where North Avenue meets the Lake Bluff. The dragon's teeth were bared, and its claws and tail curled around a ledge. People came from all over just to see it. These two longtime Milwaukeeans, Gretchen Farrar Foley and Cookie Anderson, remember the dragon. It was really beautiful, I thought, and it, it glistened in the sun. They reached out to Bubbler Talk to learn more about the art installation and find out whatever happened to the dragon. Every time I go by here, I think about that dragon. The story of the dragon on the water tower starts in a dark place. 26-year-old Therese Agnew was a struggling artist who had just dropped out of college. I was broke. I was lonely. And now I was a college dropout. Therese was walking to her waitressing job one day when she looked up and saw the North Point water tower. I just stopped in my tracks and I thought, wow. That would look really good with a dragon on it. She started by going to the Milwaukee Water Department, you know, because it's a water tower. She met with a man there who told her she would need permission from a whole bunch of people. The Historic Preservation Committee, the Milwaukee Arts Commission, the Water Tower Landmark Trust, entire Common Council. Therese says the challenge made her even more determined. She says one of the most memorable reactions was from the Historic Preservation Commission. And this guy stands up, who's an actual neighbor, and he goes, <laughs> it would be like putting a mustache on the Mona Lisa. <laughs> the story started getting news coverage, and Therese gained support from members of the public and some city officials. From all these people, they were like, 
pro-dragon. Finally, she got the approvals needed and volunteer contractors to lift the 30-foot fiberglass and chicken wire dragon onto the tower. This was her reaction. I thought it was way too small. I was a failure as an artist, blah, blah, blah. But looking back on it more than 30 years later, Therese sees it differently. People remembered it and they embellished it in their minds. And so I guess as an artist, putting an image or an idea in someone's memory can be infinitely more significant than the art object itself. I think she's right about putting something in our mind that we remember. In fact, maybe that kind of art is even more significant because we know it's going to be gone soon. That's one of our Bubbler Talk questioners, Cookie Anderson. The dragon was only on the water tower for five days, so what happened to it after? Therese donated it to the local Boys and Girls Club, but she says there's no way it could have lasted for more than 30 years. Heck no. But that dragon was tougher than it looked. It's located in our woods. That's Molly Majinski at Camp Whitcomb Mason in Heartland. Teresa's dragon is tucked into a pine tree forest the camp uses for nature hikes and scavenger hunts. I called Therese. Um, I just sent you an email that has some pictures in it. Hang on, let me see. <gasps> Bizarre. That is, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's moldered well. The dragon was only on the North Point water tower for five days. But little did Therese know, it spent decades adding magic to the forest of a children's camp. That's kind of a nice ending. Emily Files, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Support for this season of Bubbler Talk comes from UW Credit Union. What do you want to know about the Milwaukee area? Submit your question at wuwm.com slash bubbler talk. You can find all of our past Bubbler Talk stories at wuwm.com. And that Encore Bubbler Talk wraps up today's show. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Mallory Chang and Joy Powers join me in producing Like Effect each week with help from Kate Flynn, Robert, Larry, and Chase Browning. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Mayan Silver, Susan Bentz, Taryn Powell, and Emily Files from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Reevy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.